Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with the core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Jennifer Smith, the Director of the District of Columbia Department of Forensic Sciences. Previously, she served as an FBI agent for 23 years, where she oversaw analysis for DNA and weapons of mass destruction. She also led the CIA's Biological Technology Center and has served on several federal advisory groups that support national security entities concerned with microbial forensics. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to have you. Well, I am excited to be here. This is great. I love this concept, and I really appreciate the effort you guys are going to to make sure we all sort of link up, share our stories, and get support from each other. It's fantastic. So thank you. So I'm going to make you laugh, but did I say that correctly? Microbial forensics? Yes, perfect. Microbial forensics. Yes. It is very clear that I don't have a background in that. So I just want to make sure that I got that correct. No worries. (laughs) So to kick us off, um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how a biochemist ends up working in national security. Yes, well, it is a long path. And um, if you think about it as you're standing on the edge of a jungle, that's kind of the way sometimes this felt because there wasn't really a clear path to go down. So I'll start back kind of what really got me interested in all of this was I read a lot of books and I wanted to be Nancy Drew. And it was quite upsetting when my mother kind of told me, you know, there is no such person as Nancy Drew. But what I loved about her was she was an investigator and she used some elements of science. And also I am of the 60s and 70s. That's what was happening. And what was happening in that era was science was very cool. And also the other cool thing was women suddenly were allowed to do all these things, right? So as a, you can imagine sort of being in elementary, middle school and going, what can I do? The world is my oyster, right? So I stumbled upon something called criminalistics at 15, read a book, and I actually talked to my grandfather and uh, to take me to the local forensic lab, which at the time, those were police labs in Ohio. So I went to Dayton, Ohio, to the crime lab. And of course, you do what you do. You ask these people, how did you get your job? Now, one thing you should note is when I walked into that laboratory, there were no women. It was all men. And they are sitting there behind their microscopes, but they were willing to take a couple minutes to talk to this 15-year-old, even though they sort of looked at me a little oddly. And they said, well, I'm a chemist. I'm a biologist. So somehow I got the idea, well, I'm, I guess I'm going to be a biochemist. <laughs> and that is literally how I sort of got the first idea. The problem in, when I went to college was there weren't many undergrad programs in biochemistry. And remember, my goal was to actually work in a police laboratory. It wasn't necessarily to do what other biochemist students might be interested in. So I went to Penn State. It was a school where my um, grandfather was actually teaching and got my degree in biochemistry. And as I was going through that, just like many students will do today, 
I felt I needed to do an internship. Well, back in the 1980s, there were no established internships in any forensic laboratories, but I happened to have a professor who knew Dr. Bob Shaler, who was in the New York City Medical Examiner's Office in New York City. So he said, call him up. He might have an internship for you. So imagine I'm this kid from Eaton, Ohio, this small town. I went to school in State College, Pennsylvania, another small town, and now it was time for me to try to get an internship in New York City. And the reasoning for going to New York City that I gave to my parents was, there are more murders in New York City now than anywhere else. So <laughs> consequently, they must have the best medical examiner's office, and I'm going to get the best internship ever. Well, you can imagine my mother's response was, you have no idea what you are getting into. So despite that, they did... Um, allow me to uh, take this internship and I spent a summer in New York City uh, just with my eyes bulging from my head as I experienced sort of what the behind the scenes work was of a forensic serologist at this time because this was well before DNA was even out there. And here's when I got that, you know how you get a piece of advice in your life that really just changes things. Dr. Shaler said, if you're going to go anywhere in this field of forensics, you've got to go back and you're going to have to go to grad school and get a PhD. Now, this was the time when forensic science was sort of between somewhere between voodoo, witchcraft and, you know, maybe legitimate science because there weren't television shows yet. People weren't necessarily embracing it. And so his lesson to me was you've got to get that graduate degree because you've got to become a scientist, a hardcore scientist, because if you want a career in this, you're going to need it to shape, you know, the, the, the future. And he was so, so right. So it kind of went back to Penn State and had to do in my senior year, a scramble to find a college that might take me um, for a graduate program. I managed to get into Ohio State by the just good fortune. You know, my grades were pretty strong, but um, I hadn't really thought my whole life I was going to get a PhD. I found myself, as many people will, you're sort of in that gray zone of your life where you thought you had a plan and suddenly you don't quite have that plan. But I spent those four years and I kind of hid my inner hope that I would come up, become a forensic scientist because, again, it wasn't necessarily a, a typical path. But I did learn how to be a good scientist. You know, I, I learned how to put research projects together and, and things like that. But I still had this love for forensic science. And when I would talk to my graduate advisor, you know, he was, he didn't necessarily think that was ever going to be a good idea. Um, it wasn't that he didn't support me as a woman. It was more, he just didn't believe in that as a career, as a, a life goal. And so that was where I also learned that you have to surround yourself with people that see you in a different space, that see you expanded, not in their version of you, but what your version of you should be. So I went to a career fair, and at this career fair, in my last year of graduate school, I met an FBI agent. And the FBI at the time, I was very lucky because they were doing two things. They were recruiting women, and they were recruiting scientists. and I, the only little problem was I had to become an FBI agent. So, um, you know, and at the time I wasn't really seeing myself that way. And I'll talk about this maybe a little bit later, but that was my challenge, right? I, I was a pretty smart cookie, but I could barely run around the block. And so 
uh, this agent did a very good thing. He introduced me to a female agent in the Columbus, Ohio office. Her name was Kit Tang. I'll never forget her. And she told me what it was going to be like to actually be an FBI agent, not what you see on TV. So again, I, I got in and talked to somebody and they encouraged me. She encouraged me that you can do this job. If you're accepted, you can do this job. So there I am. Next thing I know, I'm on the path to getting in the FBI. But unfortunately, like many government jobs, it can take forever to get security clearances passed and, and backgrounds done. So I did do for about nine months a postdoc at Harvard. That was kind of my last chance to see maybe I really want to be in the research world. I got to Harvard. I wasn't um, especially uh, thrilled to be there, not because the people were great, but because the work wasn't as satisfying. And so I, after nine months into my postdoc, I called the bureau up and I said, no, I really, really, I, I want to do this agent thing. And they hired me you know, to the shock of everyone in my family, most of the people I know. Um, and I found myself in Quantico, Virginia in February, becoming and learning how to be an FBI agent. <laughs> I was about 27 years old at the time. And so there I am. And just as you said, like, how did a biochemist get here? Well, imagine sitting in a classroom. It's dark. It's February. It's in the evening. They're going down the rows of people as to what did you do before you joined the FBI? And the first man was, uh, he was a police officer in Boston. Uh, another person had been a, um, an accountant in a firm. Uh, then we get to one of the four, uh, eight other women that were in the class with me. Um, she had been a parole officer. They get to me and they say, and what have you done? And I said, I'm a biochemist. And I think their heads all spun around and said, what is she doing here? <laughs> but... <laughs> Again, it wasn't that it wasn't supportive. It's just, you know, I was, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was the first female PhD they'd ever hired to be an FBI agent. So yeah, you're, you're kind of like, oh, wow, wow, this is what first feels like. I got to the FBI, was sent to the field office in Baltimore, worked cases, worked some fantastic cases. And then four years into that, I was called back to the laboratory where I would begin my career working in DNA testing. Uh, again, the Bureau was just bringing on these technologies. It was about sort of 1990 timeframe. And I was very fortunate to get in on the ground floor of the development of forensic DNA testing. And then sort of the next big change in my career happened after 9-11. After 9-11, I was the unit manager in the DNA unit. I'd become an examiner. I testified a lot. After 9-11, as many of you know, it was a coming together of many agencies in the country where we thought, you know, we need to work more closely together. So the FBI and the CIA had agreed to do um, a swap of individuals. So I was detailed to the CIA, we kind of kiddingly call it a prisoner exchange, but the prisoner exchange happened. And again, I had just a fabulous experience working at the CIA at the Biotech Center, where I learned so much about microbial forensics, about the potential use of biological organisms for terrorist activities to uh, basically cause harm. So that then became um, just another unanticipated and wonderful surprise that brought me into more the intelligence uh, world. I then returned back to the FBI for another three years, um, and then I retired, went to Penn State, 
was a professor for five years and missing the being in the real world. Um, I actually came back and now I'm heading a department of forensic sciences here in DC that allows me to put it all together. Cause I can be a forensic scientist. And then I can also be leader of our public health lab, which helps me kind of pull together some of the lessons I learned about um, potential bioterrorism threats, because we actually, through our public health lab, run one of the sort of surveillance labs that is in place here in the country to try to have early detection of an event such as that. So it's a very long, circuitous path that has just been full of wonderful surprises and uh, fascinating challenges. And just the coolest career. I mean, I can't, I'm sure every single person who listens to this episode is going to say, wow. I mean, who knew that this all started with a little girl reading Nancy Drew and then creating this amazing career out of it. Well, and I think it's in a time where, you know, and we'll talk, I'll talk maybe a little bit about this more. There was so little expected of women (laughs) that in some ways, I think that actually made it a little easier because we would just sort of challenge ourselves, sort of show up there. And, you know, it was right at that time where they were saying, yeah, we did say they could do anything they wanted to. That's how she got in the room. But wait, what do we do with her? So I find as I reflect back on all of this, some of this literally was really listening to my inner voice that said, science should be fun. You're not having fun. Let's go have fun, but let's do important work. But that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you followed your inner voice almost that whole time. I mean, there were people supporting you, but some people saying, well, you know, I don't know if that's the right life goal for you in forensic science, but you just kept going. Well, and their views, and I think this is what I love so much about the jobs and meeting people who are really in these jobs. What is it really like to be in the intelligence world? Well, you don't know unless you've met somebody in that world. And when you look at them and you listen to them and you see how much, you know, if they carry the passion in it, but you also see sometimes like Kit Tang, when I looked at Kit Tang, she wasn't superwoman. You know, she wasn't this version of a female Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. of like the FBI. She was like a real person. And and so I think that that's also um, part of it that we have through television, through some, we see these images of people. And that's why actually I love this approach where we get out and we talk to people about what these jobs are like, because that, especially for women, sometimes it's sort of like, yeah, I don't see anybody like me. Am I sure I can do this? So um, there's a lot of people like us in these jobs. So is there any cool projects or uh, things that you could remember that you worked on that were most memorable to you that you could share? Yes. So, I mean, I think, I mean, my whole hope in getting into this, like I said, was I want to solve cases. How can I use science to solve cases? So again, the timing was perfect. I get to the FBI. DNA testing is just on the ground floor. So it's very challenging. We have the process. You needed big stains that you could see. It took hours and weeks to process those cases, but yet we were working really important things. We were working rape cases. I mean, in the 70s and in the 80s, there was a lot of discussion when a victim would take the stand, she would have to tell her story. And often there was no physical evidence. So often it was this horrible he said, she said, or whatever. DNA comes along and suddenly now, oh no, we have, you know, a fluid that is present here that we can do DNA on. And it comes back to a person who has almost the same DNA as you or the same DNA as you or 
conversely, we could exclude people. So if there were false identifications, you know, so it was very powerful and exciting. So some of the cases I worked on were just these very horrible and horrific serial rapes to include one that happened in my little hometown of Eaton, Ohio. There was a serial rapist who was raping women in their 50s and 60s who lived alone. And he would rape in, in Eaton, Ohio, in Indiana, across the border. And I helped solve that working with a detective there who collected blood samples she would send these samples to me of suspects and about 40 people in we actually found the individual so that was this huge rewarding experience and then there's also that those types of cases i got to work on the unabomber case the unabomber case if wow. you remember involved the first inkling of who he was actually came from his family his mother, his brother, um, read one of his manifestos that had been uh, put out in the newspaper. And when they read it, they're like, oh, my gosh, that sounds like my son. I think he might be responsible for this. They then brought envelopes to us from letters that he had sent them. We looked at the DNA. I looked at the DNA on the back of the stamps and compared that to DNA we had from other things he had mailed um, when the manifesto came in, we didn't know who it had come from. So we were able to compare those two envelopes, in a sense, and make that connection. That became a part of the search warrant when they went out and got into Ted Kaczynski's cabin. So, and then there's, you know, so the, all those types of really traditional cases. And then there can be something as odd and unanticipated as the Monica Lewinsky case. And People may be aware that the Monica Lewinsky case, we actually, my laboratory worked the DNA in that case. And it started with a um, address that was obtained, brought to us. And you can imagine, I mean, never in my life would I have imagined that one of the visits when I would meet a president of the United States would be to watch the collection of his blood so I could take it and then run it back in the laboratory. So, you know, again, it was, it was like a surreal moment that you just can't imagine that this technology might be used in some type of investigation like this. And I found myself suddenly in the director's office of the FBI, dealing with another senior agent from the Washington field office, you know, standing around a room with a bunch of men talking about seminal fluid of our president. I mean, it's just one of those moments that you, you don't anticipate. And it's, everybody was sort of looking at their shoes as I'm trying to explain to them the technical aspects of what we were doing. So it, it's, it's not um, something that I anticipate. It's something I will forever remember. And that's just sort of the forensic side on the human side. Um, the other things that I found that were so rewarding was after 9-11, you may remember that there was also an attack using the U.S. mail where an individual mailed Bacillus anthracis spores in the mail. Um, it caused the deaths of five people. So when I moved from the FBI over to the CIA, I became sort of the individual that worked that um, uh, the information exchange that was happening between the intelligence side as well as the FBI side. So all of a sudden, as I was learning sort of a lot about microbial forensics and that was opening up, working on what we called in the Bureau the Amerithrax case was fascinating because we found 
that we did not have the technology to solve that case. And that then created an opportunity for us to put our heads together and come up with better technologies so that if the, God forbid, if this ever happened again, we could use new technologies to um, investigate that. So that I think was, you know, a whole series of just the timeline of watching a, a technology grow, you know, getting to actually see results from it because I'm one of these pragmatic scientists. I'm not very patient. So to be able to see the work that I do or the work that other folks in the laboratory do to actually answer a critical decision um, for a senior uh, person to support an investigation, whether it be for you know, law enforcement's purposes or intelligence, all of those are fun and exciting and um, I think important moments. And then finally, I think the other thing that is always important in our world, uh, especially the challenges of the intelligence world is what is the strength of the data that you are sharing? What is the confidence that you have in this data? And watching our country move after sort of the Iraq war, move through um, moments of of trying to, and striving to improve, how can science be used to help us make these critical decisions? Um, being a part of that conversation, I think at the end of the day, one of the most important um, moments in, in my life and to get to work with sort of the amazing people that were in those discussions was really fascinating and fun. You know, you're telling us these stories and you said, you know, you're working through the cutting edge of this new technology of forensic science, right, as a woman. And I'm assuming that you are most likely the only woman in the room most of the time? Yes, I, so, quite so, a lot of times. <laughs> so I, I can imagine that that was probably difficult to navigate, um, both you know, the community as a female biochemist and as a female in law enforcement. Could you share with us, you know, a story when you felt that those cultural barriers, where you felt them the most? Well, I think that walking into the room, you, in a way, when you go into an agency that has a lot of men, over time, you begin to get used to it. it in, in your early career, as I said before, there's so little sometimes that was expected of us that when we really showed up and we were prepared and we performed, often they were like, wow. I think I want her on my team. So that was really often then what I got used to. The real challenge, quite honestly, came as I tried to move up in management. Because when you're part of a good team and then they want you there, but when you start to challenge, and, and by them, I do mean men, because most of the jobs that I would vie for were filled by men. But the lesson I learned there was um, one critical moment that was a barrier, I think, was when I wanted to become the DNA unit manager. And they just, you know, they didn't know me. And the reason they didn't know me was, you know, I didn't always go out golfing with them. You know, I wasn't, and it wasn't like this overt men's club per se. It just became that you weren't often in the room with them when critical decisions were made, because you know what? Sometimes critical decisions were made in the locker room. No kidding. In the FBI, if you wanted to get time with the director, you timed your run when he went into the locker room, and then you could have your little chit-chat. So I remember having, there, these were just barriers that there was no way you were going to get over. And I'll just share this one story that I thought was very funny. I come to the CIA, and when I get to the CIA, there are a lot more women in management. And my to my great joy, my 
first woman I'd ever worked for that <laughs> was Stephanie O'Sullivan. It, never in the bureau ahead I had a female boss. So I get there and I, again, I'm not really working for the CIA. I'm sort of detailed there. They want me to run this biotech center and Stephanie is in, my boss. And we were in a meeting and we're sitting at a table and we get up and we have a break. And she and I go into the bathroom together and we're still chit chatting about what this was going on and what should we do and, you know, da, 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 da. And while we were in the restroom washing our hands, we actually made a decision. We walked out and I looked at her and I said, Stephanie, for the first time in my life, I've had a locker room moment <laughs> because I can't tell you how many times I would go into meetings, the men would go off, they'd come back and they would have decided stuff. And she looked at me and if you have ever met Stephanie, she's very reserved. And she just was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I think those are times that you have to sort of build within and never let it sort of deter you, but you will have your moment, right? You will have those moments when um, you are in the right place at the right time. But I do think um, having your ducks in order, having your degrees ready, uh, you know, being on your game is still really critical. If you are um, the, the only person in the room that looks like you. So other than, you know, obviously being prepared um, and having all your ducks in a row, you know, were there other ways you kind of broke through those cultural barriers? And, you know, were there sometimes that were more difficult to break through than others? Yes. Yeah, so I think one thing I think we are still working on and I still work on is what the cultural view is of a woman and a woman leader and what a woman leader should do, how she should act, how she should talk. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you all of, you know, there's a good chance you're going to be labeled as the B word. In my case, it's the bossy boots or there are other B words, but you know, it's this um, she's forceful, she's aggressive, she's determined, you know, and that is, that is still, I think, sadly, something that we as women have to accept. And so what I have done is making sure I'm surrounded by people who, who appreciate that and support me. One thing that has really helped me is to find the people who will support you, mentors who will support you. A good example, I was able to get my detail at the CIA because Dr. Don Kerr, who was at the time the director of the FBI laboratory, he was planning on going to the CIA to lead the DSNT. And I think when I walked into his office and I was quite honest with him that I felt my career at the Bureau was stagnating and I felt like I needed some help and assistance and what options might I have. I didn't know he was going to the CIA, but he said at the time, how about this option? There, you know, you might have an opportunity to go to another agency. And it was a complete leap of faith because as you all know, sometimes the work that is being done in some of these agencies, you don't find out about until you're in the door. And so I think being attentive to people out there that are going to expand you and sh not shrink you and support you and then being honest with them, going into them and saying, I need a boost. I need some help. I need advice. And it's amazing then what they will do for you because sometimes we, we are fighting our battle alone. We aren't sharing that information and we aren't always honest with each other about some of the challenges that we will be facing. So that is a perfect way to transition to my next question, which is uh, for many motivated, hard charging women in our community, 
we often feel like we're doing things alone, um, largely just because of the nature of the work that we do. You just said, you know, that you felt that way. And tell me a story about when you felt that way. Oh, yeah. I think you you feel that way when, um, I guess, one of the loneliest times was when you are challenged by outside forces that may be challenging the work that you do or the group that you work for. And uh, you turn to others and uh, you expect that they will be supportive and perhaps that does not happen. Or I think I think more likely, kind of what you were talking about, you can't always share your work, your specific work, in the, because it is, you know... Uh, it has to be protected. Uh, you can't bring it home with you. My my spouse is especially supportive. I think that having that conversation of the significant other or somebody that you might choose to live with, I think that's very important that they know that your job may require you can't share with them what is going on. And I, I think um, I think of the time where I was going to be sent overseas. It was before the war. I came home. I told my husband, I, I can't really tell you where I'm going. Um, it's important. And uh, we had a three-year-old son, my three-year-old son at the time, and he's looking going, well, wait, uh, I'm not going to just take care of this kid. How long are you gone? And I said, well, I'm going to be gone for a while. I can't tell you. He said, well, um, is it dangerous? And I said, well, you know, it's going to require potentially some gas mask and things like that. And he goes, oh, and my husband's very funny because he's a scientist too. And he goes, gas mask, what kind of gas mask? I have a gas mask because he worked at Aberdeen Proving Ground. (laughs) And so there we were sort of talking gas mask with each other. But I knew that he was always in my corner. And I think that that probably you're going to need that support system from somebody that that you can turn to. Um, The other thing is you must believe in how important your work is because people are going to challenge you as the decisions you're making. And if you're going into national security, if you're going into law enforcement, if you're, you want to take on important work and you want to take on important challenges and you have to have those honest conversations with the people that you really count on for support, that sometimes you're going to choose the job and not necessarily what they think is in the best interest of them. And I, I, I just want to make sure, since I'm, I know I'm talking to, to you know, women in these groups, your work is important. And it's okay to have that important work. Men have been taking on important work forever. And now women um, are going to take this important work on. And you may need to be there. And that can be a cultural challenge because women are thought of as caregivers, you know, the people that need to be relied on. So I, I think that's my message to believe in the work and believe that you are the person that needs to carry it out. I love that. I think, you know, even the generation coming into the IC now, I, I think still struggle with that. And, you know, one of the things that really frustrated me early on in my career was that women would tell me I couldn't be both. I couldn't be a great mom and have a great career, or I couldn't be a great mom and have a successful career. And that always frustrated me because I didn't believe that. What was your experience balancing family and work life and what helped you push through those tough moments? Yes. Well, as I said, I'll go back to it at my whole life. I mean, in my professional life, I was watching men do it. Men had children, men went to work, men had important jobs, men were my bosses. And I, I'm, and I'm like, well, what are they doing? And then I realized I 
actually talked to a woman very early on. She was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. And I was worried because my son was young. He was going to be in daycare. And she turned to me and she said, he's not going to become a serial killer. And I think that is the cultural pull, right? You want to be the best mother ever. And you want to be the best wife ever, the best significant other or whatever. And you want to also be the best at your job. And you can actually balance it. You can do that, but you have to be honest with yourself about when the job is important and when that may mean you don't get to go to the Christmas pageant or you don't bake the cookies. But what I did was when it came to balancing my family, I knew what I could do. Like I helped the school, not by maybe going on field trips, but I was on the board. Or I would go in, here's the best thing you can do. If you have a cool job and you can talk a little bit about it, you will be the coolest mom in school because you will go in and you will be the speaker for the day, for the year, for the, you know, you, you have within you amazing talents or you wouldn't be doing this important work. And then as my son and my husband, you know, as, as we age through all this, they helped me make the right choices for us. And many times they supported, you know, my decisions, my career, because as a happy person, I'm a happy mom, I'm a happy wife, but you have to be honest. And I think when you take these jobs, you are taking important critical work and you must, like I said before, believe in the work. I actually recently had a close call. My father, who uh, my parents are both called Gene and Gene. I love to throw that out there because I'm a DNA person. So my genes live out in Arizona. They are in their 90s. They are living in um, an independent living situation. COVID hits. My father father actually has trouble breathing, ends up going to the emergency room. No one can go out there and be with him. Even if I was in Arizona, I couldn't be with him um, because of the restrictions. Now I'm also doing this job in DC. I'm running the public health lab for DC in the middle of a COVID crisis. I actually got a call from one of my fellow public safety um, leaders. Uh, He told me, he said, do what your father thinks you should do given the job that you have. And I, you know, all of a sudden it sort of helped me crystallize like, yeah, my dad knows what I do. My dad knows I love him. My dad knows I'm going to be on the phone. My dad has survived all this. And he said, he goes, he actually said to me, I, I wouldn't have wanted you to come because you have to help the people in DC. So if you're honest with your families, they will be there for you. And, and I think that women need to let go of what, culturally they're telling you and listen to you know what your country needs of you especially if you're doing it and you should go for it and you should not feel guilty about it and can i ask how jean and jean are doing jean and jean are great they're they're 91 my dad actually did have pneumonia in this it was not covid related he he survived it all the nurses were amazing and at the like i said it it was terrible to be pulled in that direction but i think if if everybody understands that this job you're doing is critical and important they will support you in making sure you get the job done when you have to because there will always be opportunities when you don't have to um, but there will be times where only you and you alone can do that important work So we end each episode with the same question. In keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, um, if you could give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? 
So I just want to tell you, when you uh, mentioned that this might be a question, I love this question. I just, I really have thought about it and uh, it was was a lot of fun to, you know, what would I be? And so I tried to, you know, spend some time. So here's what I've come up with. Sapphire Helix. Oh my goodness. I love it. (laughs) So Sapphire Helix. Why Sapphire? Well, again, I think of blue. Sapphire is a precious stone. It's blue, right? Blue to me is a a color of government, the U.S. government. When I think of not just red, white, and blue, but I think we're blue. You know, we're blue badgers, things like that. And then, of course, Helix, because my whole life I have dug into getting information out of deoxyribonucleic acid. And as the DNA has a double helical structure, so it's a helix. So like I said, I am a a government scientist who has delved into the helix to get as much information out to support either law enforcement decision, intelligence world decisions, public health decisions. So I would be the Sapphire Helix. That is a great one and a great way to end an episode. This just flew by. I can't believe it's over. Um, Jennifer, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, your stories with us, your career with us. Um, I just had a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. And don't hesitate. Anybody that's out there that hears this, that wants to touch base and talk, because I do believe it's my turn to encourage and inspire all the other incredible women in this world, because someday, I promise you, I am going to retire and it's going to be up to all of you to take care of the rest of us here. So thank you so much for the opportunity. It was fantastic. Thanks, Jennifer. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.